the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever. And as Pastor Nathan mentioned, we are now into the extended cut version of that series. And let me say why. When we mapped out that series, it was actually back in the late fall of 2019. And we had sort of mapped it up to culminate and climax with the golden rule just before we broke into summer. Uh, of course, a bunch of things happened between the plans that we put together in 2019, and now we are three weeks already into July, and, uh, and we're still looking at that sermon. And we thought, well, we're already halfway through the summer, and some people have noted, well, the sermon didn't end with the golden rule. There was a little bit more. So we're going to give you a little bit more. Think of it as the extra features. And one of them actually is an important one. It's a very timely one that has a way of intersecting with so many of the conversations going on in the world today. We want to look at one of the more controversial, one of the more misunderstood statements of Jesus that he makes in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 7. And here it comes in verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13, 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad This image of a narrow gate touches on a really deep concern that a lot of people have about religion in general, that people have in this country about Christianity in particular. And the concern runs, it runs something like this, that Christianity, because it calls certain beliefs, certain attitudes, certain choices wrong, it might refer to certain behaviors as immoral, has a way of impinging on human freedom. It tells people how they must think, it tells them how they must live. Furthermore, because Christians seem to believe that they know the truth about God, somehow they have access to truth about ultimate reality, that they believe that people who disagree with them are wrong. And not just wrong, but condemned by God for being wrong. And so as a French Enlightenment thinker, a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote, it is impossible to live at peace with those we regard as damned. That's the problem. From that perspective, Christians are depicted as being intolerant of other people, intolerant of atheists or agnostics or people of other religions, intolerant of, uh, of people even within the fold, Catholics and, and Protestants not getting along, liberals versus conservatives, Baptists versus all kinds of other folks. Furthermore, it's often suggested that in the name of, of humility, that the church ought to give up any claim to truth whatsoever. Instead, affirm the popular idea that nobody can really claim to know what's true, that I have my truth and you have your truth, but nobody really knows, nobody's in a position to judge. And those statements, those beliefs, we're told, will lead to tolerance, they'll lead to acceptance, because nobody would ever call anybody else or what they believe wrong. And then it's often thought that passages like this one, the narrow gate, the narrow way, lead to a kind of narrow-mindedness. 
And what's the product of that? Is it not believers who are unthinking or irrational? Is it believers who are blindly compliant to authority, who are intolerant, who are bigoted? I mean, to be clear, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we have to acknowledge that in our history, we have sometimes been all of those things. But here's what's really interesting, and here's where we want to concentrate our attention today. If you look really carefully, if you examine the teachings of this man, Jesus, you will notice what seems to our culture an amazing, almost unresolvable paradox. On the one hand, Jesus makes claims that are staggeringly, outrageously exclusive. He prayed one time that this is eternal life, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And Jesus says, not only is there a God, not just that, he is the one true God, meaning all the other gods are false, and not just that, it is in him that your hope rests. Most famously, Jesus once said, John 14, 6, I am the way, you know this verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus never seemed to present his teachings as optional suggestions, as nudges. Here's some advice on how to live a better life. He claimed to know how reality worked. He claimed that what he said wasn't just wise, but that it was true. He claimed that that truth mattered more than anything else in the world. And yet, and here's the paradox, this man who made claims that were staggeringly, breathtakingly exclusive, pursued relationships and connections with people that were also breathtakingly and scandalously inclusive. He deliberately touched the most untouchable class of people in his world. He would venture into leper colonies and offer physical contact and embrace with those that everybody else had shunned. He allowed a woman of ill repute to come and and find herself right in his presence and, and even went through the humbling act of having her bathe his feet and dry his sopping yet wet feet with her hair. He commended a Roman centurion among the most hated band of brigands in that world. He partied with despised tax collectors, and the list goes on and on. It's almost as if Jesus thinks that a relationship with him is now transcending all other human religious categories. It's almost as if the narrower, the more focused that Jesus gets on his devotion to God the more broad-minded he becomes in his love for and relationship with other people. You catch the paradox? Now clearly Jesus' followers have often missed that dynamic. There's a group of researchers, the Barna Group, based out of the U.S., that does a lot of research around faith in our day. They found that in North American culture, we've become increasingly splintered and divided. Well, that's no surprise yet. Read any newspaper any day of the week. Those of you who are here a few days a few weeks back, we mentioned a man named David Kinneman, who's the head of that Barna research group. And according to his research, here's what he says. 
Most Americans think it would be difficult to have a natural, normal conversation with minority groups who are different from them. They would say that they would find it difficult to have that natural, normal conversation with somebody in a minority group, like a Muslim or an atheist or an evangelical or a member of the LGBTQ community or a Mormon, etc., etc. But here's the telling thing in the research. The single group that they identified as having the hardest time having natural, normal conversations with minority groups was evangelical Christians. In fact, and I find it strange, not only do evangelicals have the hardest time having natural, normal conversations with atheists or Muslims or people of a different sexual orientation, but 28% of evangelicals say they have a hard time even having natural, normal conversations with other evangelicals. Hmm. By contrast, I mean, if you wanted to set up the contrast, you know, the longest recorded conversation we have between Jesus and another human being anywhere in the Bible is between a woman, and not just a woman, a pagan woman, and not just a pagan woman, a Samaritan pagan woman, not just Samaritan and pagan, but five times married, now living with a guy who's not even her husband woman, who no rabbi would have come anywhere close to. Jesus sits down in the middle of the new day sun and has this beautiful, protracted, lengthy, endearing conversation with her. In other words, when you look at Jesus... And then when you look at his followers, by our own admission, in the research that we do, the followers of the most inclusive man in human history are in danger of becoming some of the most excluding people in society. And often, and here's another one of the strange ironies, often we're quite lax in our devotion to God, but quite relentlessly narrow-minded in our relationships and attitudes towards other people. Jesus, on the other hand, was relentlessly focused in his devotion to God, and yet outrageously broad-minded in the love that he held for people. Why is that? Why was he that way? I mean, maybe he's just inconsistent. Maybe, maybe he was a nice guy, but not really a good thinker. Some people have said that these claims that Jesus makes about authority and these religious convictions, that these were actually made up by somebody else years later, maybe by Paul. Maybe they get retrofitted back into the Gospels. Some people say he wasn't really clear about his message. He wasn't clearly being exclusive. Or maybe, just maybe, the truth that Jesus taught actually explains the life that Jesus lived. Maybe the truth that he taught isn't in tension with that life. Maybe it explains it. And here's how. Beyond the possibility of finding deep truth and finding tolerance, two things which are often depicted as polar opposites, a commitment to truth or a commitment to tolerance, Maybe as it turns out, they're wed together in ways that we have failed to understand. You understand why this is such an important topic in our day and in our culture? 
I think the current climate of discussion does not allow for the possibility of me saying, I could disagree with you on some things that may be fundamental to your understanding of who you are or who I am, of how you conduct your life or how I conduct mine. And yet that does not require me to place you at an emotional distance and fail to care for you. That I can love you and still disagree with you in profound ways. Haven't you as parents or grandparents gone through seasons in life just like that? Why have we not allowed that family dynamic of allowing for a love that encompasses difference to persist in our society? Where now if I disagree with you, and if it's an issue that happens to be trendy, now I'm a bigot. Why is it that if you disagree with me, that you can cancel me completely? What has happened in culture? You'll notice when you talk, talk about the topic of tolerance or, or narrow-mindedness, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus nowhere commands tolerance. He doesn't say, be thou tolerant. And why is that? I think it's because tolerance itself has really this kind of minimalistic quality to that. The word that we have, tolerance, comes from a Latin word, tolerantia which actually means to put up with or to endure. It's kind of a low bar for relationships, isn't it? I'll endure you. I'll put up with you. That's not what the soul craves. When Karina and I were married, Karina didn't say, I promise to tolerate you from this day forth, sickness and health, better for worse to put up with you and endure, endure you and until death brings me some relief at last. You know? <laughs> Parents don't tuck their kids in at night and say, good night, honey, sweet dreams. I tolerated so much today. When somebody has a birthday, we don't sing that song, I tolerate you, I tolerate you. I'm stuck with your existence. What else could I do? <laughs> yeah, and some of you are thinking, hey, that's a good one. It could be useful. Let me write that one down. You are not made by God just to be tolerated. You are made by God to be celebrated. And we know this in our souls. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say put up with those who persecute you, let alone people who just think differently. If you've been through this series with us along the way, you know this, we've been studying this. Jesus doesn't say when you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember a brother or sister that has something against you, and you don't like them, and you don't like how they believe or act, just tolerate them. And he doesn't say if somebody forces you to walk a mile with them, just put up with it. No. Tolerance may be a good thing insofar as it goes, but it doesn't really go far enough for Jesus. It just doesn't go deep enough. Tolerance may be better than intolerance, but tolerance itself is a low bar. And here's why. You can tolerate somebody without loving them. But you can never love somebody in a way that's intolerant. Jesus doesn't want to leave the bar set here with tolerance. He wants to move it up higher. Jesus is inviting us, remember this from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, inviting us to live in a kingdom the kingdom of his heavenly father, a spiritual reality where the sphere of God's will reigns, where the primary law is love because God is love. So love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your enemy. And love will certainly include the virtue of tolerance. But it will never just be limited to that. It's interesting to ask, though, the question of, of why those who don't look for a grounding in, in that worldview that Jesus provides should practice tolerance at all. I mean, tolerance, which is talked about a lot in our day, requires some foundation. I mean, if it's going to have enduring value, if it's going to be something that, uh, that is imposed vastly upon people, we want to be a tolerant nation. It should require a rationale. It needs to stand on something. Doesn't it stand on this, the claim that people are equal in dignity? That all people are deserving of tolerance? But let me ask you about that belief. Where does it come from? Is it not in itself a moral belief? Isn't it a spiritual belief? Where does the belief come from that all people have dignity and deserve tolerance? Tolerance is built on a claim that every human being has dignity and value. And that's an absolute claim. And unless you can hold to it absolutely... the very virtue of tolerance begins to crumble. And you undermine it. You undermine the thing that you say you believe so much when you claim that you cannot know anything to be true. If you maintain that, then how do you know that the dignity and worth and value of persons is a truth? The cure for arrogance and intolerance, which are horrible sins, and they've infected the church and they've infected society, is not that we jettison truth. The cure is that we embrace humility. We don't have to say, no, we don't really know. We don't know anything for sure. You can be right and be humble. It's possible. You can also be uncertain and tremendously arrogant. And we see that too. Here's a quote I found. This is from about 100 years ago. Christian writer on this topic. One of my favorites. A man named G.K. Chesterton. Pardon the language. Again, it's about 100 years ago. But he said, What we suffer from today is humility in all the wrong places. Modesty or humility has moved from the organ of ambition. That's will and pride and settled on the organ of conviction. That's the mind. Confidence in logic and reason. The ability to know the truth. A place that it was never meant to be. A person was meant to be humble about themselves, But not about truth. And that situation has been exactly reversed. Because in our day, we're so sure of ourselves... We're so confident of ourselves. But we're not confident that we can know anything at all. And so Chesterton said, we are on the road of producing a race of people too mentally modest to believe even in the multiplication tables. In fact, what Jesus taught was that the greatest foundation for both tolerance and love resides in God and in his kingdom. People should be prized. But they should be prized because they are loved by God. People should be free. But they should be free because God gave them a will. 
a professor at Yale University. This is a bit of a history lesson for you who are sitting here and, and are watching a stream that's coming from a Baptist church. He said, it's no accident that the first government that actually separated the church from the state, that broke them apart and created religious freedom, was founded in the colony of Rhode Island in the 1600s by a Baptist minister, by a man named Roger Williams. This is what Roger Williams wrote. He said, It is the will and command of God since the coming of Jesus that permission be given even to the most pagan, the most anti-Christian people, people of all nations and countries, that permission be given to worship. And that if they are fought, they be fought only with the sword of God's Spirit, only with the Word of God. In other words, you don't coerce somebody's worship at the point of a sword. The idea of, of freedom of worship and conscience, it doesn't just appear out of thin air. Roger Williams said it's because every human being was created equal and free that in God's sight, and this is his language, in God's sight, forced worship stinks in the nostrils of God. And again, with Roger Williams, you see this paradox, an odd paradox, that it's precisely the narrowness, the focus of his devotion to God that leads to this staggering broad-mindedness in his understanding of government and the society that he founded. You know that about your Baptist parents, did you? The very notion of the separation of church and state, the freedom that you enjoy to worship, hatched in the mind of a Rhode Island Baptist. All that brings us back to our text this morning. This language of the narrow gate, this language that's so often misunderstood and yet so important. What is Jesus really talking about? If the narrow gate is not narrow-mindedness, if it's not just doctrinal correctness, if it doesn't mean being right and having everyone else be wrong, because that leads just to intolerance, what is it? Well, here it is. The narrow gate is simply doing what Jesus asked us to do. If you want to write in the margin of your Bible, here's the one key word for this teaching. The narrow gate is about obedience. The narrow gate is obeying. And that's another word that in our society has gotten all messed up. It means obeying creatively and intelligently and joyfully and falteringly sometimes, but with open hands and, and unclenched teeth. Obeying the one who has thoroughly mastered life and death and who knows. Obeying him in all things. That's the narrow gate. If that's the narrow gate, what's the broad gate? What's everything else, isn't it? It's just doing anything other than staying laser focused on the vision of a life lived for Him, with Him, and under His guidance. Jesus is quite clear that when you live your life that way, you'll find freedom. Another time Jesus put it this way, John 8. 
John 8, 31, 32. He says, if you obey my teachings, you're really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know those words, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free? They are inscribed on more university campuses in more cities across North America than any other phrase. If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Here's the problem with those, those campus slogans. We truncated the verse. We took off the first part. And we are just left with, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We didn't read the contingent phrase, if you obey. That's the narrow road. If you obey. Generally, we think in our day that that obedience is the opposite of freedom. We think of freedom as the absence of all restrictions, but it's not. Freedom isn't the absence of restriction. Freedom is living with the right restrictions. It's swimming in the moral and spiritual reality of God and his kingdom for which we are made. If you obey the teachings of Jesus, he says, you're really my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The issue that Jesus is pressing from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the end is the question, whose disciple will you be? A lot of people think the church exists to make Christians and that Christians are people who just believe the right things. And they believe the right things so that a narrow-minded God will let them into heaven someday. That idea, that idea has to be picked apart, has to be deconstructed. Jesus never called anyone to be Christian. Look it up. But he was calling everybody to be disciples prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman centurions and religious leaders and a Samaritan leper, all of them. And when he used that language, a disciple, he wasn't using confusing or mysterious or even a particularly religious term. A disciple is simply somebody who has committed themselves to be with another person to learn from them how to do something. You are somebody's disciple. You have been in the course of your life. You've learned from somebody else how to live. A little baby's born, they have to learn how to talk and walk and read. And later on, they learn how to spend their time and spend their money and how to relate to other people and what's worth sacrificing for. Everybody is somebody's disciple. Usually starts with their parents. And then later on in life, we make our choices, for better or for worse, on purpose or just because you're drifting. For sure, you are somebody's disciple. When I was growing up, my parents thought it was kind of a good idea that my brother and sister and I all learned to play the piano. I'm the oldest, so I I broke the new pathway there. And and I studied with a German piano teacher, Ms. Lutgat Meinsner. She was very German. She was very strict. She used to beat time with a ruler. And if my fingers drifted out of position on the keyboard, she would beat my knuckles with that ruler. She was intimidating. She wasn't that joyful. At least it didn't seem to me as a kid. I finally decided I didn't want to be her disciple anymore. So I told her so with colorful language that I regret using. 
It was 40 years ago, and I still am afraid some days that Lutgat Meissner is going to show up in my living room and make me play scales. But to be somebody's disciple means that you choose to be with them. You choose to learn from them. When Jesus is talking about the narrow way or the broad way, He's just talking about the way that life is. It has nothing to do with narrow-mindedness, this kind of brittle, look how right I am, look how wrong you are. No, it's saying, this is the way life is. If you want the freedom to make great music, you will have to arrange your life around practicing and lessons and scales and study. If you want the freedom to play great tennis, you must arrange your life around fitness and drills and coaching and watching tape. If you're an alcoholic and you want to be free, free for sobriety, then you must arrange your life around surrendering your will and going through the steps and getting a sponsor and helping other people. The narrow way is the way of life through which you receive the power to accomplish the vision that's been given to you. Whether that's to play the piano or play tennis or be sober or to live like Jesus lived. The broad way just means to do anything else. And when Jesus says that many people take the broad road and few people take the narrow one, He's not trying to predict how many people are going to end up in heaven. And for sure he's not saying that God will be happy if only a few people make it there. The Bible's quite clear, isn't it? God is not willing that any should perish. That's not his desire. God is just simply noting through Jesus that the broad way is the default mode for living. Generally, people just drift through life. They drift usually by habit, they fall into the patterns of whatever else is going on all around them. Here's the question then, we'll leave you with this one for today. Have you become a disciple of Jesus? I'm not talking about a prayer that you may have whispered at some point in your life but the daily commitment to apprentice yourself to a master, to learn a craft. In the case of Jesus, the craft is life itself. Is living the way that Jesus would live if he were here in your place, is it your top priority? Or have you become a disciple of something else? Money or health or security or addiction to your own image. I mean, this is so crucial. This is... This is why we are here as a church. So for the next few weeks in the extended cut of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to focus on exactly this. What does it mean to be a disciple? The urgency of Jesus' call to discipleship takes up the entire balance of the Sermon on the Mount from here right to the end. Then a few weeks from now, when we tie it all together, we're going to have an opportunity for anybody who wants to who wants to clearly and deeply commit themselves to being his disciple, to do that, to put obedience above all else. I want to invite you to start thinking about that now and praying about it because that day is coming. But what I want to leave with you today is that, that you can practice the promise. You can practice it this week that if you go through the narrow gate, if you walk the road of obedience, which is the best road, that you don't do it alone. That through the Holy Spirit, each morning as you open your eyes, 
and greet the new day that God promises to be available to you in every moment. And through prayer and through the words of Scripture and and through the least of these in whom Jesus is always present, God's people together, you will not be alone. You learn not just to obey Him, but to revel in the thought of obeying Him and to think maybe obeying Him in this is in fact the greatest opportunity I will ever know in life. Be utterly narrow. Be utterly narrow and focused in your devotion to Him. And then be broad-minded in your interactions with an acceptance and love and conversation and celebration of people who may be radically different from you. You don't have to give up on truth, but never give up on love. And remember when you go through that gate, no matter how narrow the path, no matter how confusing the road, you are never alone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray particularly that you would help us to understand these challenging words of Jesus because they're hard and they sound odd in our day. So I pray for myself, I pray for everyone who's listening, everyone who has the desire, everyone who wants more of Jesus in their life. We would find a way to prize and prioritize that narrow gate above everything else. Forgive us, God, and help us not to become narrow-minded, not to become intolerant, not to fall victim to that, hey, we got to be right kind of people. But then in particular right now, God, I pray for everybody who's feeling trapped in, in a dark place today. Maybe, Lord, today it's their health. Maybe it's a child that they love, who they've had to let go of. Something is going on and it's so painful. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe they're just caught in shame or hurt. Whatever the care is. God, just keep whispering. You're not alone. You're not alone. Don't give up. You're never alone. We pray all this together. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.